here. Well, if uh, you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open up to the book of Titus. We'll be in uh, Titus chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there, that'll be on roughly page 998. Uh, So this week we'll be wrapping up our series in Titus that we've titled Good Doctrine, Good Deeds. All right, so before we get into the scripture this morning, I want to go a little political on us with a a quote, okay? Listen, listen to this quote. Maybe, maybe you can uh, pinpoint who the, the political leader was that said this. However beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. However beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. Okay, so let me just help you here. That was not from our president, Barack Obama. That was not from another presidential candidate for 2012, Mitt Romney. All right, I wanted to, to tip our hat a little bit in light of the Olympics. I wanted to tip our hat to, to Great Britain. And this was not actually from a, a, the current or former prime ministers, um, David Cameron, Gordon Brown, or Tony Blair. This was actually from one of their prime ministers of the past century. Can anyone name who that might be? Sir Winston Churchill. No matter how beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. And I think we would agree that any school teacher, any business leader, any little league baseball player would understand the truth of this statement, right? Results matter. Strategy is important, and we should continually tweak and and evaluate our strategy. But if our strategy is not producing results, then maybe we need to go back and re-examine how beautiful that strategy was in reality, right? So this is true. Any way you slice it, just in, in contemporary life, and let me post to us this morning that this is also true in the church, and as we look at the New Testament, we, we find Jesus with, with, a, with a plan, with a strategy, okay? And we find Paul with, with a plan and a strategy, but it, it, we can be certain that they were concerned about the results. They wanted to see people come to know this God who made them and worship this God who made them. And so they were concerned about doing ministry as efficiently and as effectively as they possibly can so that the maximum amount of people could come to know and worship this great God. So if results matter, and by the way, let me just throw this out here. something we talk about at Redemption Hill often. We want to be greedy for God, all right? We wanna be greedy for God and greedy for the works of God. It's not a sin to be greedy for God. All right? It's not a sin to be greedy, to see God working and to see his results among us. And so if that is true, and it is, then the question is, how, how do we get about this? How do, we, how do we strive for a fruitful and lasting ministry all to the praise of God's glory? Well, I think Paul is gonna teach us in Titus 3 that it needs to come by us allowing the gospel to reign in us that it might advance through us. You got that? That's where we're going this morning. Allow the gospel to reign in you that it might advance through you. So go ahead and look at Titus chapter three. And I wanna read the first few verses here, starting in verse nine. This is what Paul writes to Titus. He says this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, 
for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So the truth that we want to walk away with in these first, free ver- th- first few verses, the, the, the encouragement for us that, that I want you to get first is this, that we should protect the reign of the gospel through purifying the church, okay? Protect the reign of the gospel through purifying the church. What Paul does here in verses nine through 11 is he lays out, just as he's already done in the book of Titus, he lays out one final warning against these divisive and evil false teachers. He's going to, 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 to lay down some strong instructions to deal with these false teachers in the church. Now, We need to see the importance of that very first word in verse nine. What does it say there? It says, but avoid, right? So so what Paul is doing here in verse nine is he's contrasting what he is about to say with what he has just said in verses one through eight. And so I actually want us to understand how crucial the context is. So, So let's start in verse four of chapter three and read down through verse eight. This is what Paul says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so there you have a great statement on the gospel. And if you wanna know, maybe you've come here this morning and you're thinking, man, how can I possibly relate to God? Man, I don't have my life together. I don't, I, don't, I don't really, you know, live my life for God in the way that he would want me to live it for him day in, day out, week in, week out. So, so how can I possibly relate to God? This is a question we all ask, right? And so let me, let me just point us back to what Paul just said. It's not by, most people would think, man, I've got to clean my life up. I've got to get my, you know, sins together and, 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 and be, live more righteously before God. But, but that's not how we need to operate. What Paul says is it's not by works of righteousness. It's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. This is why Jesus came so that he might live the life that we should have lived, die in our place and be raised again so that through faith in him, we can have this life that God intended for us in the beginning. And so it's through faith in Christ and looking to Jesus and and then experiencing the salvation that God desires for us that we experience the grace of God and have new life in him. See, the the gospel was of first importance to Paul. It It was what he built his whole ministry upon. He understood, as he's already explained in Titus, that the gospel saves us, the gospel sanctifies us, the gospel releases us for good works. 
And so Paul's concern is that we get the gospel right and that the gospel would so capture our hearts that it would continually reign in us that we might live for the honor and glory of God. Because Paul understood that the gospel changes everything. That the gospel is so extremely excellent and profitable anything that would come in to distract or take away from the gospel, he is going to address it sharply and decisively. And so that's what we have in verse nine here. He says that we uh, ought to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. You see, what was going on here in Crete, you had these false teachers that were coming in and they were stirring up division among the people. Now, we probably can't figure out exactly what's going on here in verse nine, but, but it seems that at times these false teachers were probably just stirring up the dissension and debate for the sake of debate itself. And, and even maybe even more extreme than that, they were teaching that a person could attain God's favor and his approval by their own works of of righteousness. So maybe it's their family pedigree. Maybe it's them keeping the law perfectly and even adding to the law and the expectations that God has already laid out in his word, this, this legalism that so often creeps into our life where we think if we keep these certain set of rules that that's what earns our favor or approval and forgiveness from God. And so Paul is, is seeing that here and he's saying, look, you have to avoid these types of discussions. You have to avoid these controversies. You have to avoid these false teachers. And so what is maybe one way that we do this? Well, it is by absorbing our minds and our hearts in the gospel. It is by taking what we know to be true of God and how he's worked and just preaching it to ourselves day in, day and day out. There's an excellent resource on this. It's called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. And what he says in the intro of this book, I want you to hear this this morning. This is is helpful. He says, God did not give us the gospel so that we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. The wise believer learns this truth early and becomes proficient in extracting available benefits from the gospel each day. We extract those benefits by being absorbed in the gospel, speaking it to ourselves when necessary, and daring to reckon it true in all we do. All right, so I want you to consider this. We're gonna gonna talk about this as we go in this text, but the gospel not only allows us to enter into the Christian life, and experience the salvation, but it actually should motivate everything that we do, every relationship that we have, every response in any circumstance or situation, the gospel should be the driving force of every single one of those. We'll hit that more in just a little bit. But this is why we at Redemption Hill value sound doctrine, okay? This is why we just take the Bible and we just roll through it because we think that the word is sufficient. We have nothing to add to it ourselves. And so we just try to really explain it and apply it as we see it here, as God has revealed it to us. This is why this fall, we're gonna start equipping classes on Sunday mornings before our service 
to go deeper into doctrine. That's why sometime in uh, October, we're going to add a, an event. It's just going to be a time where basically we come together. Whoever wants to show up, if we have three people, if we have 300 people, it doesn't matter. We're going to go for about four or five hours, and we're just going to dive into the Word. And we're going we're gonna to address an aspect of theology so that we can really immerse ourselves in the truths of God because it's doctrine that allows us to know God rightly and then consequently live for him truly. That's why we have resource tables. That's why we put our sermons online. So if you're out one you know, week, you can, you can catch the sermon online. We wanna immerse ourselves in the gospel because it's the gospel that keeps us in a position to glorify God. And so Paul says, look, in verse nine, he says, these, these false teachers, this false teaching, it, it is unprofitable and worthless in contrast to the gospel that is both, both excellent and profitable. Do you, see the, do you see the contrast there that we find in chapter three? And you say, well, Tanner, I don't, I don't hear people, you know, you know talking about genealogies and, and, and I don't know exactly how, you know, this, this really applies to us today. Well, listen, we still have people who creep into the church and seek to stir up dissension and division. At times, it may be people who come in and they want to major on minor points of theology. You know what I'm saying? So, so they get all wrapped up in, in the little details of Scripture that we can't be ultra confident exactly what it means. And they, and they make a, a major deal out of those just to stir up debate and controversy. It, it could be those who create friction between relationships. Did you hear what he said, she said about them, about you. So people stir up division that way. It could be people that are just ultra critical. I mean, we, we want feedback. We definitely, you know, we don't have it all together as a church, but there are just those people that don't want to, you know, give constructive feedback and be helpful, but they just want to run their mouth and, and, you know, be ultra critical so that it can tear others down. And so Paul says, look, division is going to creep in. And it's little wonder that he goes on to say in verses 10 and following, look, for that kind of person, for that kind of person who stirs up division, warn him once, then twice, and after that have nothing more to do with him. Why? Because that person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, let's get on to a touchy subject matter here. Paul is laying out for us some instructions that we are probably tempted to kind of like a lot of Christians and a lot of churches just kind of turn a blind eye to that. Hey, we'll sweep that under the rug. He didn't really say that we should, you know, confront people when they're, they're erring and sinful and divisive and disruptive, but that's what the text says, right? So, so we, need to, we need to receive that and we need to consider how that we can be faithful to live this out here. We can't be casual in our approach to holiness and in our dealing with sin. We can't be cavalier in our approach to sin. And so what Paul does here is he, he lays out the biblical teaching of, of church discipline. All right, you say, what is that? Well, let's, let's just talk about this for a few moments. We see it uh, laid out all, all over Scripture in the New Testament. We find Jesus giving instruction in Matthew 18. We see Paul giving this instruction in, in 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, here and in other passages. 
And basically what the point of church discipline is, and, and, and I just want to maybe speak to parents here for a moment, or if you're an, uh, an, an owner or an employee of a business, you understand that when someone gets into your family, if you're a parent and wants to cause disruption and division, you're not going to stand for that, right? You're not going to allow someone to come into your family and tear it apart. If you run a business or, or, or an employee at a business and, and someone comes into the business and just, you know, is, 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 a, is a continual problem, you're going to ask that person to, to leave, right? You're going to warn him, try to be gracious, warn him again. But eventually you're going to have to remove that person from the premises of that, that business. That's how it works, right? And so Paul and, and Jesus even gives some instruction here on how to deal with people that don't have the church's best interest at heart. And so what is church discipline? Church discipline is is lovingly confronting someone who is, listen to this, in substantiated, habitual, willful, unrepentant sin when that person refuses to repent, okay? So so let me me hit that again because this this is important, okay? If you are a part of Redemption Hill, and we hope that, that many of you who are maybe just coming on Sundays will continue to stick with us. You do not have to worry that, you, you, hey, I have to have it all together in this church. Man, if I don't have it all together, man, people are gonna call me out as soon as they see me blow it. Listen, hey, we blow it all the time, right? We're, we're, we are people, we are, we are sinful people, even though God is changing us by his grace. Man, we're in constant need of reform and improvement. So we don't expect perfect people around here. We're not a perfect church, all right? There's the new newsflash there, all right? Just not, a, just not a perfect church. But the point here is that sin is still serious and it needs to be dealt with properly. And serious sin needs to be dealt with in a serious kind of manner. Listen to what I said again. It's substantiated. It's not just an accusation. It's, hey, the, the, the reality is there is serious sin going on here. And what makes it serious? Well, it's habitual. It is willful and it is unrepentant, okay? So, so don't miss what's going on here in verse 10. What, is, what does Paul say? For this person, you need to warn him once, all right? So the goal is if someone is stirring up division, I mean, you go to that person personally with, with love and humility and wisdom in your heart, and you, you, you say, you know what? I see this going on. I see this, this sinful pattern in your life. And we need to get this right, man. I'm concerned about you. you. You've deviated from God's plan for your life. You're no longer glorifying him and you are causing major disruption in the church. And I wanna, I wanna ask you and beg with you to be reconciled back to God and, and to be restored to God. Which by the way, that is the whole goal of church discipline, all right? Church discipline, really, let me just back up. Hopefully, before we even get to warning number one, church discipline should be going on all the time, and it's called formative self-discipline, all right? Where we're disciplining ourselves, like 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, for the purpose of godliness. And, man, when we blow it, when we sin against God or when we sin against someone else, we recognize it, and we see it, we confess it, and we seek change. That's the goal. The goal is transformation and restoration. So hopefully after that first warning, the person is going to be willing to respond as God would have them and change, repent, be restored. But at times, surely that won't happen. 
And so Paul says, you know what? You need to go and you need to, to warn them again. You need to call them to restoration and repentance again. And I know that there's a kind of, in our culture today, it's, it's kind of, you know, taboo to say, hey, you're wrong, right? No one wants to hear that, that they're wrong. But I just want to tell you that that, that view is, is wrong, okay? <laughs> it's just, it, it doesn't stick. We all blow it. We all need help and correction. So we go to them a second time. We warn them again. Actually, what Paul has done here is he's compressed what Jesus describes in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we even have a third step of, of seeking restoration where Jesus says, hey, if, 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 a, if a, a brother won't repent and be restored after the first, the second time, then tell it to the church and the church should go and love them and seek to restore them and beg them to repent and follow God again. And then if that happens again, where they continue in the rebellion and in their unrepentance, then Jesus says, treat them like someone who doesn't know God. And in Titus, we see here that, that Paul just says, have nothing more to do with them. What does that mean? It means that, that we now view this person as someone that we can't trust Christ really dwells in them. And so we treat that person like someone who is not really a believer. Okay? It does not mean that we do not love them. It does not mean that we do not care about them. It does not mean that we don't continue to go and, and call them to follow God with their lives. It doesn't mean that they're not allowed to come to worship and those types of things, but we don't fellowship or associate with them in the same way as if they were claiming to be followers of Christ. That's church discipline. And, and even I think we can go a step further. If there is someone that is this divisive, then we would be willing at Redemption Hill, and I hope any church would be willing for the sake of the protection of the purity of their church to say, you know what? We regretfully have to tell you after begging with you time and time and time again, you're not welcomed at these events. You're not welcome into our gatherings, but, but you know what? We still love you and we'll still meet with you outside of, outside of these times, but we can't allow you to be disruptive and divide our church. So that's what's going on here. Paul, Paul, um, says we have to treat this with great seriousness to preserve the, the purity of the church, to preserve our witness to the world and ultimately to glorify God. That's what it's all about. But remember, in all of this, the goal is always, always, always restoration. That's the goal of church discipline. And so before we move on here, let me just say, I, I know, I talk to people all the time in Medford and Greater Boston. Man, we start talking, I tell them I'm a pastor, which is always kind of an interesting conversation, right? And, uh, and, and we'll start talking about church. And you know what? Most of the time, I don't hear people having a major issue with Jesus. I hear people saying, you know what? Man, I don't trust, I don't respect, I'm not on board with the church. And so a lot of times there's a general skeptic skepticism to the church. And, and sometimes, guys, listen, it's warranted. Sometimes churches do really stupid things. People have legitimately bad experiences with the church. But we have to love them through that. We have to call them to see that, that Jesus maybe would not have treated them like that. And, and churches that are really on board with the mission and vision of Jesus would probably not have acted in those same ways. So we're still calling people to, to follow, not with, a, not with a spirit of judgmentalism, okay, but with a willingness to love them enough to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. 
And that's what Paul is calling Titus here uh, in, to in, in, in Titus chapter 3. So Paul desires that the, the gospel would reign in our hearts. Do you see that? He wants the gospel to reign, for, for people to really live out their faith in a way that is consistent with the gospel. And he wants this for the whole church. He's concerned for the purity of the church. And then number two, we, we, we not only need to protect the reign of the gospel through purifying the church, we should also push for the advance of the gospel through compassion and love. All right, we should push for the advance of the gospel through compassion and love. Look with me in verses 12 through 15. Let's read them together. Here's, here's what Paul writes. When I send Artemis Artichicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So what, what is Paul doing here, okay? I love this. Okay, I know, I know. I just know how this works, right? We, we, we read, you know, the beginning of a letter in the New Testament. We see kind of the greeting and the salutation. We're like, oh, that's not very important. And then we get to the end of the letter and we think, you know, hey, these are just some really, like he's just kind of naming some names and saying, hey, have a nice day. You know, hope things go well there. And we don't really pay attention to the end of the letter, right? Anyone ever guilty of that? Huh? Okay, the rest of you are lying. Um, <laughs> so what is, Paul, what is Paul doing here? He is, listen to this, he is getting business done, all right? Paul is getting business done, and his business was to make sure that the gospel advanced. He was living out what Jesus said in Luke 19, 13 to his disciples, where he says, engage in business until I come. And so Paul's life was given to the business of making sure the gospel advanced, it was the passion of his life. In Acts 20, 24, such a great verse, he says, however, I count my life as worth nothing to me if only I may complete the task and finish the race the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It was something like that. I memorized that a long time ago, so I tweaked it up a little bit. But you get the point, right? So what, what, is, what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, my life, is given to this so much so that if I have to die for this, man, I'm gonna die for this because it's more important that the gospel would spread than I go on living. Can you say that about anything in your life? Could you say that about the advance of, of the gospel? I mean, if the, if the mission of God is of supreme importance, that there is nothing more important under the sun that people might know God and live their life for God and honor God and worship God with their life. If that is most important, then surely we should give ourselves to this. This is what Paul did. But what I love about Paul is that Paul had enough sense and humility to know that he could not do it alone. And so what Paul did was, just like Jesus, he got a team of, of people around him that could help him fulfill the mission more efficiently and effectively. And so this is what we have going on in Titus 3, 12 through 15. 
Paul is like a master conductor here, okay? I don't know if that's how they do it, but this is kind of like what Paul was doing here, all right? Never mind, I'm gonna stop. Um, He's like a master conductor, all right? Titus, I left you in Crete so that you can put things into order. Hey, listen, I need you to stay there a little bit longer, verse 12. And, And eventually you're gonna see either Artemis or Tychicus show up And they're going to free you up then to to finish your ministry there and meet me in Nicopolis because that's my plan to go spend winter in Nicopolis. So we'll, we'll meet there. We'll pray together. We'll work together. We'll witness together. And then after the winter ends, man, we'll, we'll, we'll split up or we'll go together and we'll, we'll fulfill a ministry somewhere else. And not only that, you need to, 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 allow Apollos and Zenos to lawyer. Apollos was one of the greatest preachers in the early church. We find that in Acts and 1 Corinthians. You need to send Apollos and Zenos to lawyer on their way. But don't just send them out. I mean, make sure that they're taken care of, Titus. Make sure that, the, that, that they have what they need for their journey. That, why? The gospel might advance. Paul is doing all of this that he is doing so that the mission of God would be accomplished in that part of the world. Paul knew how to put the right people in the right places to meet the right needs. And what we learn from this, one of the most valuable lessons we can learn about mission, I hope that you will take this away this morning, is that mission thrives in the context of community. All right? Mission thrives in the context of community. We get this at Redemption. We're trying to get this at Redemption. As John pointed out earlier, what's our mission? We exist to glorify God. Well, how are we gonna do that? We're gonna live out his mission. How are we gonna do that? As a community. It's mission in community. We do mission as a community community, not one person over here, another person over there, another person kind of doing their own thing, another person over here doing their own thing. We do it as a community, unified, working together, working with and for one another so that we can fulfill God's mission most effectively for his glory. It's mission in community. And if you're a part of our Serve Medford Week, and I hope as uh, like 100% of us in here, even if you can't come to the events, you could be praying for us and, and making sure that, you know, God blesses our efforts. But listen, if you're part of Serve Medford, you're gonna, you're gonna find out the importance of mission and community this week. Because there are gonna be times where you are discouraged. There are gonna be times where you lack resources. There are gonna be times where you need some wisdom or you need some prayer. And if you're at it alone, man, you're alone. You're out there and you don't have anyone to help you. But if you're in community, you're gonna find that what you lack, someone else has and can supply. This was how Paul and Jesus went about it. And this is how we need to still go about it to get today. This church, Redemption Hill Church, will be great. Not because we have one or two or three or four or 10 or 20 leaders that are trying to get this done. Redemption Hill Church will be a great church when everyone is on board with the mission. And so I hope that you want to get on board with the mission because we need you. God wants us to serve together for his purposes. We need, we need one another to get the mission accomplished. And we see this at the end of of verse 13. Specifically here, he says, 
make sure that, that Zenos the lawyer and Apollos lack nothing on their way. The early church consistently met the needs of missionaries who went on journeys to take the gospel to people who had never heard. This is why at Redemption Hill on, on Sunday morning, typically every Sunday morning, we pray for not only our church, but a church in greater Boston or, or North America and the nations. This is why in our community groups, we each have, uh, uh, each of our community groups has a missionary or a missionary family that we're praying for. So we pray for the Alexanders. We pray for the Palmers. We pray for Keith Campbell. We pray for Amy Chastain. We pray for the Kings and the Coppingers. We have six couples that we're consistently praying for every single week. And we want to find ways to encourage them and to pray for them. This is why at Redemption Hill, listen, this is not to boast, okay? These are just the facts. You need to know these things about our church. Every dollar that we give, okay? Now, let me explain something here, okay? We're, we're a new church, all right? So, so we rely on the support of other churches, many of whom are here today. And let me personally, on behalf of all of our church, say thank you to everyone who helps us get this mission accomplished. We need outside help, all right? So we're still dependent on that. We're working toward not being dependent on that. So all of that money is given to the mission here. But listen to this. When you give, if you choose to give, when the baskets are passed later in the service, 22% of every dollar will not stay here for work in Medford and Greater Boston. It won't stay to bless Redemption Hill. 22% will go that the gospel might advance in North America and around the globe. And listen, that's not to pat ourselves on the back. I don't think that's enough. I think it's a good starting point. We want to build it into the DNA of our church. But prayerfully, as we grow, as we serve, we're going to be able to not do 22. Man, we're going to be able to do 32, 42, 102. Never mind. So as I was watching the Parade of Nations on Friday night, did anyone watch the Olympic opening ceremony? Twitter was blowing up with, speaking of ultra-criticism. Um, yeah, I didn't think it was... Never mind. Um, but, uh, but, but more importantly, when the parade of nations came in and you see those flag bearers, you know, representing their country and, and all of the different cultures that are represented in that, that garb. I mean, I, I, I love that. I love to see people from all over the world coming together for this, this great event. But I couldn't help but think, man, how many of these people do not know the God who made them? And how many of these people need to hear the gospel that they might worship the God who made them, the God who is worthy of their worship? I love what Jeremiah 10 verse 7 says. It says, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of all the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So let me just clearly say, the, the, the Bible says there is one God. There is one salvation found in him. And every person needs to come to this knowledge of salvation through God's mediator, Jesus Christ. And so God is worthy of the worship of all 204 nations that paraded around Olympic Stadium on Friday night in London. And we should pray for that. We should want that. But you know what? I had a further thought, and this is the one that troubled me the most. 
I'm responsible for that. We are responsible for that. It's our job to make sure those people hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So what are we going to do about it? Can we not pray more fervently? Can we not give more generously? Can we not witness more consistently so that more and more people can hear? Listen, I think we're a praying church, but I know we can pray more. For, for, for as young of a church as we are, we're, 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 our giving is not bad, but our giving could be better. We are a witnessing church in many ways, but our witness could be more consistent and more radical so that more and more people might hear. And so let me just ask you, could, could you pray more fervently? Could you give more generously? Could you witness more consistently? I'm confident that, that most every one of us, including me, would say yes, yes, yes so that people might come to know the joy and the life that is found in Christ. And so Paul finishes up in verses 14 and 15. He says, look, let our people, it's so awesome that Paul calls the Cretans our people. It shows the affection and the love that he had for them, even though he was not the one with them. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Hey, I love this week. This is, a, this is a new kind of holy good tradition in the life of our church. We call it Serve Medford Week. And this week at Serve Medford, as, as we've explained, we have teams supporting churches from all over the country that have come in together with us to accomplish with our people at Redemption Hill what we call Serve Medford. Serve Medford is just simply a week of radical service to our community. Here are a few things that we'll be doing this week, all right? We will be sending teams to clean various parks, beautify and restore parks in Medford. We will send teams to volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club. We have a great partnership with to, to help meet their needs and, and care for the kids and put on programming and, and do all kinds of stuff there at the Boys and Girls Club. We'll help put on a kids camp at one of the housing developments in Medford. We'll invest at Salt and Stall and, and spend time with senior citizens there who need some company and some, some good activities. We'll engage in all kinds of random acts of kindness just to be a blessing to people, to show people that you know, people really do care and that there really is some, some goodness around and, and we'll display the gospel in those ways. And then uh, we'll also help internationals learn English at MIT a couple mornings. We'll send a crew down there to help uh, Angie and Michael do what they do at MIT, helping international students to learn English. And then finally, the whole week will culminate in our community fun night, a free event for kids and, and families in Medford to come and you know, do their thing and, and eat free food and play on free inflatable games and get their face, face painted for free and all of that, all right? So it's gonna be a busy, busy week. We're gonna be serving together, doing mission together. And you say, well, why do we do this? I mean, is it because we, we, 
we want to, to you know, see Medford become a better place and add value to our community? Yes, that's, that's a reason. But you say, is it a, you just want to, you know, like build a better reputation for the church? And I mean, sh- sure, that's, that's a byproduct of what we do. But, but as we go to each of these spots and engage in all of these activities, we're going to have an opportunity to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will have an opportunity to communicate something that's true and beautiful and compelling about the character of God and how he relates to us. So when we serve people and we are kind to people, it's reflective of how God has served us and has been kind to us in Christ. When we are generous and we give of our time, we show how God has been generous and has given himself to us in Christ. When you get, this is how, do you see how the gospel motivates everything? Here's another way the gospel motivates. When you're rejected this week, and there's a good chance that someone will not be happy about us trying to do a little good in the city. Most people are gonna be receptive and welcoming, just that's the way it is. But, but surely at some point we'll be rejective and criticized. Listen, before you get upset about that, could you just remember that you once rejected God and that the gospel would motivate patience and a forgiving spirit to those who may even reject you this week? It's beautiful how that we have an opportunity to display the gospel. And at times, you're gonna have an opportunity, not just to simply display the gospel, but at appropriate times and places, you're gonna have an opportunity to declare the gospel. Listen, no one is gonna get saved, all right? No one is gonna receive the life-changing power of the gospel by us giving them a free hamburger. You got that? (laughs) They have to hear the message. They have to know why we do what we do. Man, we do this because God in Christ has served us and he's given us, he's met our most deepest need. And we can receive, you can receive the same gift that we've received. Let me tell you about it. We'd love to tell you about that. And so this week, it's our prayer. We're gonna spend some time praying in just a few moments. But it's our prayer that that people would see this. And that as the gospel reigns in each of our lives, in each of our hearts, that is the the most fertile soil. When the gospel is reigning in our heart, it's the most fertile soil for the gospel to advance through us. And so I just wanna ask you this morning, is the gospel reigning in your heart? Are you trusting in your own works of righteousness? Or have you trusted in Christ and what he's done for us and his life, death, and resurrection? And if you have, are you you depending on the gospel? Are you relying on this grace that continues to sanctify us and to work through us? Because if you are, if the gospel is reigning in your heart, man, look out. Because God can do something awesome this week as we seek to serve and love those around us. Let's pray that he will do that as we serve. God, thank you so much for our time in your word. And God, we... We may not be like the people described in verse 9 and 10 and 11, but we also know that we don't have it all together, that we struggle, that we sin often against you and against one another. And so, Father, we just pause right now and just just confess that to you and ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us and, 
and make us more usable that we might be used by you, be instruments in your hands to advance your good news and your mission here in this city. God, we pray that that your mission would advance here through Redemption Hill, through other churches in greater Boston, and that the effects would be felt across the globe. God, thank you for this opportunity. Would you use us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.